Today's episode is brought to you by the Tin House Writers Workshop, which is now accepting applications for its 2021 online summer workshop, which will take place this July and which will feature short fiction, novel, poetry, and nonfiction classes. In addition to its general scholarships, Tin House will offer awards for trans and indigenous writers, for independent booksellers, for writers over 40, and for those born outside of the United States. Tin House will also be waiving all application fees and offering a scholarship for Oregon BIPOC applicants. The deadline to apply is March 22nd, with more information available at tinhouse.com workshop. During today's episode with Brandon Hobson, though we focus primarily on his latest novel, The Removed, we also end up talking quite a bit about a short story of his that is the lead story in the latest issue of Noon, the magazine founded and helmed by Diane Williams, and about the ways being edited by Diane Williams over the years has been an influence on Brandon's own writing. I definitely suggest seeking out Diane's appearance on the show as a great follow-up to this conversation with Brandon. In fact, I'm sure there is no better episode in the last 10 years addressing the meaning and mystery within the syntax of a sentence than the episode with Diane. I'll include a link to that conversation in the show notes. I was happy that after our conversation, Brandon decided to read that very short story, A Man Came to Visit Us, for the bonus audio archive. This joins past bonus audio from Laylee Longsoldier, Therese Marie Myatt, Ted Chang, Tiju Cole, and from Diane Williams herself. Subscribing to the bonus audio is just one potential benefit of transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. All supporters get a resource-rich email with each conversation and get to participate in our ongoing, kind of mind-blowing collective brainstorm about what dream guests we want to see on the show going forward. And there's just a ton of other potential benefits. Collectible items from Nikki Finney, Ursula K. Le Guin, Ricky Ducournay, Forrest Gander, and others, to becoming an early Tin House reader, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. To find out about all of this and much more, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Brandon Hobson. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin.
Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the novelist Brandon Hobson. Hobson earned a doctorate in creative writing from Oklahoma State University and is a professor of creative writing at New Mexico State University. An enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation Tribe of Oklahoma, Hobson is also our writing mentor at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. And this year, Hobson is also a judge for the 2021 Pen America Literary Awards. His fiction has garnered a Pushcart Prize, has appeared in McSweeney's, Conjunctions, Noon, and American Short Fiction, among many other places. His books include The Levitationist, Deep Ellum, Desolation of Avenues Untold, and his last book, Where the Dead Sit Talking, which was a finalist for the 2018 National Book Award in Fiction, longlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award, named a Best Book of the Year by Kirkus, Southern Living, and NPR's Code Switch, and which won the Reading the West Book Award. Chiara Barzini says, I fear and ferociously admire everything Brandon Hobson creates. He's the only person who can describe the way an object becomes whole when we have enough time to look at it, or the presence of a loved one in the air even after she is gone. Brian Evanson adds, Where the Dead Sit Talking is a tender and unflinching look at shell-shocked young lives as they try in the eddies of foster care to keep their heads above water. Hobson writes with a humane authority, but without giving his characters any alibis. What we have instead is a careful look at what it means to be physically and psychically scarred, abandoned by parents, Native American in a white world, haunted by death, and on the verge of becoming an adult. A wonderful and harrowing novel. Thus, the arrival of Brandon Hobson's latest book, The Removed, comes with much anticipation, with starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Library Journal. Tommy Orange calls The Removed spirited, droll, and as quietly devastating as rain lifting from earth to sky. Jonathan Lethem says, Hobson has delivered an act of regeneration and solace that you won't forget. And Molly Young for Vulture adds, Hobson's last novel, a Cherokee coming-of-age novel set in 1980s Oklahoma, was a finalist for the National Book Award, and I'll eat my pajamas if his new novel doesn't get a nom too. Finally, Marcella Davison Aviles for NPR says, The story in this book is deeply resonant and profound, and not only because of its exquisite lyricism. It's also a hard and visceral entrance into our own reckoning as a society and civic culture with losses we created, injustices we allowed, and family separations we ignored. It's a path of renewed mourning, meditation, and trauma, which at once seeks the vitality of what once was and justice for what was taken. Welcome to Between the Covers, Brandon Hobson. Thanks for having me. So so your last two books are very different in many ways, but they do share several broad attributes in common. They both, unlike your previous books, explore Cherokee identity and history and cosmology. They both begin narratively with a death, and they both are set within or engaged with the foster care system. But the ways you engage with Cherokee identity, the details around the deaths in each book, and the way the foster care system is portrayed in both are, are very different. 
I was, I was hoping we could start with the origin story for the removed, how the real life killing of natives by police became the impulse to write the novel. So I was hoping we could start with you talking about what you were feeling and thinking that led to the removed to be set 15 years after the character Ray Ray's death unarmed at the hands of a police officer and placing us as readers with his family who live in the present day of the book in the long shadow of his murder. Well, I was interested in thinking about the aftermath of violence against natives and, and how long that, how long that goes on. Um, and, and, how people are so affected um, for such a long period of time. And this goes back hundreds of years, the violence against natives, but it's still happening. Um, and, and also thinking about the, the AIM movement, the American Indian movement um, in the late sixties and early seventies, um, which began out of, you know, a, a retaliation against police violence against natives um, or as Russell Means calls American Indians, um, whichever term you you want to use there, but um, the American Indian movement um, it was something that I, I've been thinking about right a lot for and and have always thought about. Um, and so when I began writing uh, the removed, I didn't want to go into too much detail about it. The killing other than of, of the of Ray Ray other than just the fact that he's shot by a police officer um, and that 15 years later of course this is still very much on the family's mind naturally but how it parallels with the violence from 200 years ago when Andrew Jackson sent the soldiers to remove tribes out of North Carolina and Georgia and to move, uh, to move West. So that removal, um, you know, is that's, those were all the starting points of what I was thinking about. And I thought there, you know, I've just, I've got to write a novel about this. Yeah. Well, when Natalie Diaz was on the show, we, we talked about our poem American arithmetic, mm -hmm. which engages with the statistic that, natives are more likely to die by police than any other racial group. Mm -hmm. And I suspect one reason this poem needs to be written is because this isn't what most people would think if they were to guess. We went on to talk about how there's a hypervisibility about around the suffering of black Americans in this regard, that black suffering and the perpetual lack of being treated as fully human is served up almost as entertainment and certainly as spectacle we all know the names of unarmed black people who've been killed from Trayvon Martin to Michael Brown to Breonna Taylor. Their bodies are on the news. Videos of their deaths filmed in real time are either delivered up as news or just one click away on YouTube. But for natives, it seems like the mode instead of spectacle is that of silence and erasure, not just around police violence, where I suspect most people can't name a single native person killed by a police officer, but also the epidemic of disappeared indigenous women across North America, which also doesn't make the news and, and, and not making the news and the lack of any response, I suspect becomes a self reinforcing prophecy 
making native women more of an appealing target for predators if if there's no consequence or even narrative or story. And I was also thinking like lately there was a tweet by Lucas Brown Eyes where it said 88% of the missing children in South Dakota are native. That's systemic, that's racism. And to me the silence seems part of the violence. And that is what I I found interesting about the NPR blurb that I read at the beginning that the that framed the removed as an opportunity for a societal reckoning. And I was both curious if that was part of the impulse for you of writing the removed to write into the silence. And also if you had any thoughts about the silence in the first place. Yes. I read that Lucas Brown, I tweet and I followed him, you know, and, um, um, I'm a fan of his, I, you know, that's, yes. I mean, that's a lot of the reason is the silence this the silence not just around police shooting police brutality against natives or violence in general against natives but also the silence around the missing and murdered indigenous women right that and not just in the united states i mean canada has a huge problem yes. first nations up there i I'm, I'm hoping that people are starting to talk about it more and especially um and, and this is in no way to take away from uh, Black Lives Matter, of course, and, and the police violence against um, any people of color, right? Um, but, but specifically to draw it to, toward natives um, is, is a way for me to write, to, to write, to, to, to write this book. And, um, you know, uh, Russell Means, uh, is gone. He's passed away. Dennis Banks um, is gone. He's passed away. These were very big um, activists, right? Uh, in for 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 natives, and um, you know, my 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 hope is that we'll, and I think you know, on Twitter we certainly get to see, um, you know, more people engaging in conversations and being able to draw. Uh, draw attention to, to, to these issues. In my way, I want to do it through my art, which is writing fiction. Um, you know, and, and that being said, though, um, you know, that I'm, I, I, as a fiction writer, it's not the only issue I'm interested in, obviously, because I have other work out there, right? Um, but it is a big part of these last two books. I wanted to to really really focus on, um, yes, writing into that silence. Absolutely. Well, in your in your round table rapid fire interview at LitHub, when asked to give words to describe your book, you said, "Memory, police brutality and its effects, the mistreatment of Cherokees, visions, loss, and healing." And, and in light of us talking about erasure and silence around police violence against natives, talk to us about memory and its relationship to the removed. Well, I was thinking in terms of memory with uh, Ernest, the, the, the dad, right, who's in the early stages of Alzheimer's, losing his memory. And when Wyatt, the, the foster kid, comes to the house, 
um, he begins to get his memory back. It serves why it serves in a way as a sort of healing mechanism for his Alzheimer's because he can recognize spiritual Ray Ray, right? He can recognize there's something, you know, the, the Ray Ray spirit is, is among him, right? Um, and, and that begins to take uh, manifest in miraculous ways. And so I was thinking about memory there, but I was also wanting to draw, you know, attention to the memory of the removal yes. of the tribes, you know, and, 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 um, memory in terms of the, the old traditional stories, Cherokee, the old stories that really arrived in Oklahoma where, and I'm from, obviously it's been my whole life in Oklahoma. Um, and those stories arrived there, um, you know, not written, um, you know, but they arrived in oral tradition and, and, and then were, um, and then James, a man named James Mooney ended up documenting a lot of those you know, over hundred years ago. But um, the the memory of those stories uh, needs, you know, the, those stories need to to be around. Um, and then, and I wanted a place for them in um, contemporary fiction, mm. right? So I, you know, I think they're important to uh, to think about. Well, the Achota family, 15 years after the death of Ray Ray, is in a tough place in many ways. You mentioned the father suffering from Alzheimer's dementia, so literally losing memory. The son, Edgar, is, is deeply lost in addiction. The daughter, Sonia, is in what seems at least at first to be a, a self-destructive pursuit of love uh, with a white man. And the mom is trying to hold things together, but really Ray Ray is who's holding things together. Their shared memory of Ray Ray, the ways he is collectively kept alive in each of them. And one of my favorite conversations you had for this book so far is with Rebecca Mackay for Pan America. And part, part of what was satisfying for it about it for me was her attention to the formal choices you made as a writer. And one of them being that Ray Ray dies on the same day as the Cherokee national holiday that commemorates the constitution written by the Cherokee nation after their forced removal to Oklahoma. And that each year the bonfire, the Chota family has acts as a sort of double act of memory. It's a time to gather and remember Ray Ray, but at the same time as they are remembering the removal of the Cherokee from their land. Um, one of the uncertainties of the present day of the book is will everybody in the Achota family show up this year? Um, there's so much going on. Um, will they come together as a family and be there for the bonfire? But what Rebecca points out, uh, which I think is true, is that the way you've structured the book, you've created this ticking clock to the story. The book takes place over six days that will culminate with or without a bonfire at the end. And those formal structural decisions allow you to attend more to atmosphere and character and to language over plot um, and to the ways memory affects each of these characters, for instance. 
because the form sort of becomes the engine that moves this, the, the book forward almost as much as the story. So I, I was wondering if there was a journey for you arriving at the form for the removed and if so, what that journey was like. Well, I'm, I'm always more interested, I think, in language than I am certainly in, in plot, I think, you know, being, I think most of us who write literary fiction are interested in experimenting and, you know, in, in more ways than, than just looking at it, especially a traditional, uh, you know, sort of storyline or, or plot that, that we all learned in school. Um, but one thing, the language in this book is, is written purposefully in a way that I hope that reflects what I'm trying to, to, to do, which is to focus on how each, each character speaks, but also to culminate in this sort of unified issue of separateness. I guess if that, that I know that it sounds weird, but I, um, I, I did. So some of the language, uh, I have some Cherokee, I have some symbols, but I also have some syllabary. Um, and I hope that the language, I hope that the language focuses more of more importance than, than the plot does. Well, it feels like there are at least three different syntactical um, languages in the book or rhythms to the book. Like I'm thinking the 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 language of of um, the quote unquote normal everyday life, and then the language of the sala sections, which are ancestral, mm-hmm. and and then the language of being with Edgar in uh, an altered state and also in potentially an altered place, which we'll talk about later. Absolutely. Yeah. You're much better at talking about this than, than I am. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, the language reflects for Edgar, um, the fact that he is in this completely myth- mythological space, right. That, um, exists uh, only to pursue um, an escape, right? I mean, for him to try to, to escape um, this uh, torture and racism, right? I think that the language of Chala is much more, I tried to focus much more traditionally, right? Mm-hmm. By using a little bit more of Cherokee language and um, and then certainly Sonia and, and Maria, um, more sort of everyday though. And, and yeah, I, I was, I don't have to repeat myself, but I mean, that to me becomes a, maybe as a reader for the, that's, you know, I read for language often, um, you know, and, and, and focus less on resolution. I like ambiguity because I feel like so much of the world is ambiguous and uh, um, what's, what's not spoken is often 
more interesting than, than what is said. There's nothing worse for me than writing than reading some write some somebody who's written something that's overwritten, mm-hmm. and you feel like you know it's very long, and you think well, this could have been a hundred pages less, right? And it's just overwritten. Um, I think I get you know a lot of people will say I. Well, I guess it depends on who it is, but some people say that I tend to underwrite, right? And and but but to me, it's that unspokenness um, that I've always and people like your former guest Diane Williams, who's been kind of a mentor to me, um, J.D. Salinger, right? Uh, um, people writers like that who the unspoken becomes part of what when I when you come away from their work becomes as fascinating as what's on the page. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, I, as you mentioned, the Ray Ray being removed from the Achota family echoes against the ancestral trauma of the removal of the Cherokee themselves from the Southeast when gold is discovered in Georgia. And because of this discovery of gold, all the previous treaties were voided and the Indian Removal Act was passed and between 15 and 20,000 Cherokee were forcibly moved and removed on the Trail of Tears to modern-day Oklahoma, a removal that killed around 25% of the Cherokee population due to exposure, disease, and starvation. And I, I think often about how the absence of memory that seems particular to settler culture of North America presents a challenge to me as an interviewer, and I imagine it must also present a challenge to you as a touring author. I can't presume that listeners have a shared collective memory or understanding or knowledge about most historical things, and perhaps that's understandable when I'm talking to Jenny Erpenbeck about East German history or Nettie Okorafor about the Biafran War, but it seems equally true when we're talking about our own history, whether the details of the Korean War or the details of the Trail of Tears. And because I suspect that guests are asked over and over again to do the labor of explaining the historical trauma of their own people, my imperfect solution is to um, include details within my questions like I just did. Um, it, it's I don't know that it's a solution, but but I wanted to ask you about a different aspect of of cultural amnesia or even cultural dementia. And that is the question of how Native Americans are both perceived and portrayed. If nothing about a contemporary indigenous person's experience visibly enters the mainstream cultural consciousness, if we don't regularly see contemporary Native people portrayed in art or in visible positions within the media, it seems that all that is left are, especially in the absence of like a historical knowledge, all that's left are stereotypes to fill the void. Stereotypes that are frozen like museum relics or mascots for sports. Um, and you engage with this phenomenon directly in, in The Removed. But I was also interested to hear about how it affects you as a writer. Because I'm thinking of your recent conversation with, with the Cherokee poet Santi Frazier where you said you wanted to include ancestral voices in the removed without them seeming hokey. And Santi shared how similarly he would never include 
talking animals in his poems based on how he knows it would be received by a non-native audience, confirming and reinforcing the stereotypes he's probably having to deal with on a day-to-day interpersonal level. So I was wondering if you could talk about this and how you navigate it and how you keep it from paralyzing you, the, and the anticipation of how something might be received by others in this context. It's an excellent question, and it's a very important question, because so much of what we do is, is looked at as stereotype, you know, among other. I grew up in Oklahoma, and so did Santee. You know, we're both, we're both uh, enrolled Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Um, and um, I mean, I think that's everything that people see in Hollywood points to stereotype. Um, and, and no other culture, it seems like to me, has been so obvious about that, about pointing to stereotype. I mean, we, uh, there's not, there's, if, if you look at television, there has not been um, a Cosby show for native, a native family or a family ties for native family or anything necessarily. Um, and, and it seems like to me so far, Hollywood is, is, um, has done a terrible job at portraying Native Americans. And um, they're, they're, even in the, the new movie, the Tom Hanks movie, News of the World, I mean, there's the sort of white savior idea, right? There are those, um, there, there, there are not urban Indians who are portrayed in the media, it seems like. And you can drive down to, you know, to, to see in town or something to see a lawyer um, who's native. Right. Or, or, you know, you, um, you know, see a native, uh, you know, we're native congressman, congresswoman. I mean, you know, it's uh, that stereotype is very, very dangerous. And as a writer, you can't help but think about it and try to write through that, which is in the, with the Achota family. I try to show, yes, they're an Oklahoma family who are, you know, up, about to celebrate the Cherokee national holiday. Um, but they're also a very, you know, a very sort of urban normal family who goes about, you know, goes, you know, about their normal lives. And um, to go back to, Chala's sections, when I was writing Chala's sections, I was thinking about um, that more than anything. I was thinking about stereotype, right? Part of the avoidance of the stereotype for me was um, part of what drew me to write even more about Chala, if that makes sense, to avoid the stereotype Yes, I do have part of uh, like the talking wolf that he shares, but that's from the old traditional mythology, mm-hmm. right? In the same way that, you know, um, we read stories of Greek mythology, which we all read in school, you know, and, um, 
you know, but those are still an important part of uh, what it means to forgive, what it means to be human, um, how we how we look at nature, how we treat animals, and that was more of anything. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, part of this book is is heavily focused on nature too, and what I do, um, and what one of the things I talked to Santee about is. Uh, through each different lens, or excuse me, each different uh, character, I tried to to think in terms of color also. And um, Edgar's sections being a little bit more hazy and smoky, whereas Maria's sections, um, you know, are, are very colorful. Um, and then Edgar's sections become more color, colorful as he gets out of the, the darkening land. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, to write through that um, and get away from, get away from, from stereotypes as, as much as possible, but it is a challenge because nobody's helping us do it. Yeah. No, it reminded me, the questions raised by you and Santi reminded me of a Mother Jones essay by Pass Between the Covers guest, uh, Therese Marie Myatt. Mm-hmm. called Native American Lives Are Tragic, but Probably Not the Way You Think. And she talked about the Native American Journalists Association, which had created a bingo board designed to catch overused and hackneyed ideas employed by newsrooms over and over again. And it included the words alcohol, poverty, and then the phrases vanishing culture and dying language. But she goes on to say, quote, this may be helpful for reporters, but what of us Native authors and artists who want to express the truth of our lives, which are sometimes affected by, yes, poverty and alcohol? These conditions are not unique to Native people, of course, but when they are applied to us, it feels definitive. And then later she says, I don't want a joyous future nearly as much as I want the freedom to present the tragedy in our lives and not be bound to it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Therese is, um, you know, I'm a fan of hers. Uh, her book is, uh, is amazing. Yeah. I think so too. Her berries. Yeah. is, um, but I think, um, that stereotype of natives living on a reservation, living in poverty on the reservation is, is often, I think what people, you know, and think about and, and think about in terms of alcoholism. Um, whereas uh, so many of us did not grow up on a reservation like me. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I lived in a um, more of an urban environment growing up, right. Area, you know, right outside of Oklahoma city among with many, many other native kids. Uh, and so the idea of the, I, you know, the urban native and Tommy Orange's book certainly addresses that in Oakland, right? But it's all, it's everywhere, the urban. And um, that is a very important uh, thing for, for people to think about, right? And I don't think that it's being, uh, I mean, they're, part of it is they're not seeing it anywhere. You know, we're just now starting to read about it, right? We're not, they're not seeing it on, on, on television and movies. Um, 
not reading about it so much um, yet. I do hope that that's changing. And the more students, especially native students that I work with um, who are writing about it um, is, is continues to, to, to bring hope for me that things will change. I mean, you've said explicitly and you're, you're sort of saying it here now as well um, that you're, you're trying to complicate these stereotypes and dispel these stereotypes, for instance, portraying native families who aren't on reservations is one way to do that. But I'm wondering what about this question of native American in a bigger sense, like that you're received as a native American writer and perhaps even asked to, speak about the state of Native American literature, which seems to have a subtext that right. Cherokee experience is interchangeable with the Navajo or Hopi experience. Right. And that's that's not true, right? I mean, every tribe is extremely different, right? Well, I say extremely. I mean, every, every tribe is different. There's so many tribes out there. Um, I, I don't consider myself, an, you know, any any more of a native american writer than i do just a writer a uh, fiction writer i consider myself a fiction writer um i i i think you know for people to say um here's american literature and then here's native american literature right can 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 draw an issue that um as if we're put in into an other category right Here's all the here's all the, the American literature, right? But then we have the Native literature over here, as if we can't be a part of of, of the overall, you know, um, American literature, right? So, um, I guess to get back to the idea of um, breaking through the stereotypes, I think my last two books, I want to show. Uh, in, in, in my last book, Where the Dead Sit Talking, for example, um, Sequoia is, is uh, a young Cherokee boy, um, but he's also, you know, there's some gender uh, issues that he's thinking about, right? And, and he's exploring um, the way he dresses, for example, you know, and, and interested in, um, you know, uh, in, in some ways is interested in, in Rosemary's clothes much more than the clothes that he's wearing. So those kind of thoughts that are going through the mind of a 15-year-old boy, whether he's native or whether he's white or black or any, you know, whatever. Um, those are the sort of, you know, I, I, the things I was interested in, not just him being, well, his name's Sequoia. He's a, he's a Cherokee uh, boy. He probably looks like this, right? In the, in the reader's mind. Yeah. Right, to break it. So, so yeah, I've always been, um, interested in trying to break through in some way, in different ways, that, that stereotype. Well, one of the secret joys of your books is the way you slip in references to things that you don't need to notice to understand or enjoy the book at all. But if you do, it kind of adds this other, other dimension. And I'm thinking, for instance, you bring up Sequoia, who's, who's named after an incredibly important person in Cherokee history who invented an effective written Cherokee language, one of the only cases in recorded history of an individual in an oral culture creating an effective original writing language. And this one apparently raised the liter literacy rates 
really quickly of the Cherokee in the 19th century to a higher level than the surrounding settler uh, communities. But it also inspired the development of 21 other writing systems used by 65 different languages. So that was all really interesting to explore, um, none of which you would need to explore. Uh, but you do a similar thing with the Achota family, um, with the name Achota um, being the old capital of the Cherokee Nation pre-removal, but also part of the name of the treaty that would call for Cherokee removal. And I guess what I'm thinking about is in terms of like memory and erasure and the flattening that happens with the term Native American is I have to imagine there must be real differences between different subsets of Cherokee, uh, certainly between the Eastern Band still in North Carolina and the much larger Oklahoma tribe. But perhaps I'm imagining between the old settlers, the Cherokee who came voluntarily versus the ones who were forced to move later. Um, but I, but one of the things I was wondering about memory and specific to place was how much of Cherokee contemporary spiritual practice engages with the land and the landmarks from the Southeast versus Oklahoma. Like how much of it is a, is a reference to lost homeland to keep it alive in memory versus an immediate engagement with the physical and biological features of, of Indian territory now. Some of that I, I can't speak to. I, I will say, I can, I can say this. Um, the, the attention to, in this book that I wanted to draw to the land and to nature, and um, to animal life, whether that's bird life or, or deer, wolf, wolf or dog, um, is as important as human life. It's as important, nature itself, animal, um, is spiritually as important as the humans in this book. They're all, they're all on equal levels that I think that's all I can really probably share about that. And I'm, I'm speaking, you know, I'm a member, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee nation. Um, there are three bands of Cherokee, right? There's the Eastern band in North Carolina. There's us, the Katoa also, there's a third in, in, in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which is where Cherokee nation is. So two of them are in Oklahoma, the third is the Eastern band. Um, the, we often get, we often get lumped into um, this idea. Okay, in Oklahoma, people will come to me and say, I've always heard that I'm Cherokee, right? That happens a lot, in, a lot in Oklahoma because of being such a large tribe. And I, if I'm digressing a little bit, you know, I apologize, but I, I do wanna say that it's, um, Cherokee is among, sometimes among natives, um, you know, the, the, the becomes, sort of the go-to, like, um, we're going to jab at Cherokee a little bit because everybody says they they are right. a, a little bit Cherokee, right? Most, um, most famously, recently, Elizabeth Warren, right? Right, right, Elizabeth Warren, yeah. And, and, and in her defense, like a lot of people in Oklahoma, they have this, they're not enrolled 
but they have been told, as she probably was, um, that her ancestors were Cherokee. Um, and so she's, she's not saying that out of a place of, of anger or of, of dislike. You know, she's, I think she's saying, she was saying it proudly, um, you know, that, you know, my ancestors were part of this. The, a lot of Cherokee, I know a lot of Cherokee pe- people who were angry about that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the problem ethically comes in if you're securing a job or your university is looking at you as a diversity hire when someone right. else might have actually yes. gotten that position if if you hadn't have done that. I think her Harvard Law School application said Cherokee, I think. Yeah. Um, it, it, you sure. know, and that that's when it, yes, that's, uh, you know, did that take the spot of someone who, you know, actually was enrolled, for example, and, and um, but uh, yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, in her defense, I do think that she said it from, um, she really, it came from a good place. Yeah. Well, in, in your first three books, if we include your chat book, you're not dealing with native themes and you, you've said that you didn't want a bio or a photo in them that you wanted the work to stand on their own. You didn't want the work marketed based on your personal history or identity, but each of the last two books increasingly has embraced your, your heritage, your ancestral history as part as an integral part of your storytelling. And it made me curious if there was something that happened in your life or, or changed in your mind or heart that led in that direction. And I don't know if I answered it when I came across this really great essay that you wrote about your grandfather and about his sudden death and the notebook that was laying open in his lap that has changed the trajectory of your life. And I have no idea if the timeline matches up with the way your books have changed, but could you talk to us about the notebook um, or at least about the notebook and the way you do in the essay, um, what it what it contains and what it has meant for you at, as you've moved forward since that discovery? Um, I, let me address the I, what I think the the picture first, if that's okay. Um, one of the reasons I I went ahead and and allowed my picture to be. Um, shown in in the book uh which there there's so many pictures of me online now. i think people can you know whether it's my website or you know i've provided pictures but i think i would have with that book um you know i i kept my hair i had i you know i had a, I had a haircut relatively short and i i felt like that picture was not a, a following a stereotype um you know, so I did feel like, you know, one of the things I was trying to do with whether it's a talking is break through that, as we said earlier. So I thought um, they really wanted a photo. And I thought, well, if they're going to use a photo of me, um, you know, I I should do something interesting here. Right. So I, I, I tried to, um, you know, use one that um, didn't fall into what. I guess a stereotype would be, but I mean, I think now um, I'm not interested in my picture being on any of my books, um, whether they're address native uh, uh, issues or not, um, 
because I mean, people can find a picture of me, they know what I look like. Um, but also I, I am really interested in the work um, standing on its own. Um, that essay, um, you know, um, part, part of it is, uh, you know, part of that was part of the removed, um, you know, that, that whole piece from conjunctions. Um, and, and so some of it's a little bit embellished, right? So that's not an entirely nonfiction. Some of that is, is fictionalized a little bit, right? Um, but part of what I think um, drew me to, uh, to, to writing, I think that piece was the interest in um, finding the old uh, reference to the old tra traditional Cherokee stories, my interest in mythology, my uh, interest in how those stories uh, found their way to Oklahoma, how they have impacted my ancestors, um, uh, my family members, uh, and and ultimately how they they uh, influenced me. Um, you know, my my the truth is I didn't really know my grandfather at all. So that's not an entirely truthful piece. Yeah. Right. Is the notebook a real book? The notebook is um, not one that my grandfather, I'll say that it's not one that my grandfather kept. Right. Yeah. I didn't really, again, I didn't really know my grandfather, but, um, and I don't like to talk about my, my life too much, but, but, I will, I can say that, you know, um, writings, my book came out of a, a, a very strong interest in learning more about my family. And so the sections in the book that are Chala, mm -hmm. are they connected to, to what you've been exploring about your own family history? Not so much, because so much of Chala's story, to me, is kind of a ghost story. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write, you know, I wanted to write kind of a ghost story. Um, and one of the things Santee and I talked about, right, was the, the, the interest in wanting to know so much about the ghost here in my, in, in my book, right? Um, are the questions that we don't ask of Hamlet's father's ghost, right? <laughs> right. You know, or the or or Shakespeare's ghosts. Um, you know, or uh, any. You know, I, I mean, I I think there there becomes an interesting interesting conversations in why the Native American ghost becomes more fascinating to to non-native people yeah i mean i wonder if it's connected in a similar way to the magical negro phenomenon whenever you see a, mm. a the positive powerful uh black person in a movie like Whoopi goldberg in ghost is right. somebody who has who wields these magical powers and isn't really fully a dimensionalized human human being even when it's even when it's a positive portrayal, well, we can we can blame the way you know. I mean, we can uh, continue to blame Hollywood for you know their portrayal of uh, 
of these things. And I mean, one of the reasons Marlon Brando refused the best actor Oscar, you know, in 1973 was because of the way that Hollywood was not portraying the American Indian, right? And what figure, what Hollywood figures out there can native kids look up to? You know, and that that continues to um, bother me that if if my I have two sons and, and um, you know, what native actors can they look to uh, on the big screen who they can, you know, say, look at as a as a, as a role model? Um, what what? athletes out there um, part of the you know in this book is you know I, I make reference um to Jim Thorpe right who's kind of a famous and again playing on the sort of stereotype the idea of stereotype Jim Thorpe being um you know arguably one of the best athletes ever having played professional baseball and football and, and then got his gold medal Olympic gold medals taken away because he was receiving money for for a professional athlete um you know, and and uh, there, West Studi is is he's Cherokee as I am, and he's he's a he's a native actor, but there aren't too many, yeah. <laughs> right? And there certainly aren't any young ones. Um, since 1973, you would think with something as bold as Marlon Brando's refusal of it and giving the finger to to Hollywood, right? Which was um, you know, such a, such a wonderful, great thing that he did, um, where Sachin Littlefeather, um, you know, who's still alive and still writing, by the way, um, you know, getting booed. I think they were probably, the crowd was probably booing Marlon Brando, um, you know, but, but, uh, you know, Tommy Orange writes about that a little bit, um, or has written about that moment, but it's such an important moment, but yet, this is almost 50 years now since that moment. And, yeah. and I don't know that anything's changed. Yeah. It doesn't seem that way. Well, yeah. I would love to hear a section, have you read uh, uh, one of the Chala sections, but before we do, I just want to say I'm, I'm impressed by the way you seduced me with that notebook story as truth based on my own, what I, whatever biases I'm coming to about what I want to read as, uh, uh, you know, the ghost in the Cherokee story versus the ghost in Shakespeare to the point where I, I'm yeah. completely credulous about, about, um, about what you wrote. It's a little bit, I'm, I know I'm being a little bit of a trickster there. I like um, it. I think okay, I think good. it's great. No, I mean good. it's like well, in a uh, way, I mean, it makes me complicit in the, uh, you know, as the reader who's right. you're playing into this. Maybe you're playing into the stereotype around your own journey as a writer in that story. A little bit, yeah. yeah. And like and I'm it. glad that you know this may be revealing that secret here because I haven't um, admitted to that yet. You know, until 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 this show, but. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's exactly right. And yeah. that sort of idea of, uh, playing in, in, into that. So, yeah. um, okay. So this is Chala. My beloved son, time among the dead is mysterious. Time among the dead does not exist the way humans experience it. 
during life. Time may be felt. Look to the sky and there we are, soaring like hawks, circling in the air. We are the birds appearing like a string of red berries against the clouds. We are all around the deities to cover every expansive body of land. We are bathed in rainwater flying together. We are a sparkle of blue light inside rocks, the swift rising of smoke and dust forming the hazy outlines of bodies. We are speakers of the dead, the drifters and messengers, the old and the young, lurking in the shadows of tall trees at night, passing through the walls of abandoned buildings and houses, concrete structures, stone walls and bridges. We are the ones watching from underwater, rising up like mist, spreading like a rainstorm over fields and gardens and courtyards, flying over towers and rooftops and through the arched doorways of old buildings with spider cracks in their walls. We reveal ourselves to those who will look. It has been said we are illusions, nightmares and dreams, the disturbing intense apparitions of the mind. We are always restless, carrying the dreams of children and the elderly, the tired and sick, the poor, the wounded, the removed. In 1838, the firing squad killed you before they killed me. Your mother adorned us in gold and jewelry and buried us. You must know that adornment is as important in death as in life. So they made it known that we were beautiful, even absent of our spirits. An elder had once taught me not to be afraid of death because there is no death. There is only a change of worlds. I refused to migrate west on the trail, and that is why we died. I refused because it was not fair treatment, and I was willing to sacrifice my life for you, our family, and our people. Yes, I know an old man has a mouth full of thunder, so does an old spirit. Before you were born, I helped Dragon Canoe and his son take the fleshy side of enemy scalps and paint them red and tie them to poles for the scalp dances. We imitated the Europeans who invaded us by dancing a foolish, awkward stomp to show their clumsiness. More importantly, the dance healed us by weakening the other races who were responsible for harm or sickness. It was also used to heal the sick for our own people. At one of these dances, I met a man named Jagyaji whose war medicine was an Uptenes shedded skin and burned turtle shell, which he used to smear on his face and body for protection from enemies. He had never been wounded because of wearing this war medicine as strong as yellow root. He warned me of the seventh hell we were living in, and soon I had dreams of the blood and destruction. Dragon Canoe told me, you will be a visionary with prophetic gifts. You must learn to understand this. Beloved, we knew the soldiers were coming before they ever arrived. Our people knew long before, thanks to the prophecies. It was a time of fear, but we would never let fear bury us. I've been listening to Brandon Hobson read from his new book, The Removed. So in your, your ambiguously fictional essay, <laughs> you, you say that you always believed that that the Cherokee tradition was like mythology, interesting myths. 
And then after finding this notebook, which may or may not exist, you uh, were trying to live based on Cherokee traditions going forward. But what I wanted to ask you about isn't that, but I wanted to ask you about vocabulary and your feelings about different vocabulary in terms of the way reviewers or readers approach your last two books. So first thinking of the word myth, but I'm, I'm also thinking about how the white foster parents in where the dead sit talking want to make Sequoia comfortable by constructing a teepee, even though the Cherokee never had teepees. And I suspect some of the ways labels have attached themselves to your work have been equally well-meaning and yet inaccurate. And the most common way I see this book framed is, is utilizing an, is a book that is utilizing and exploring Cherokee folklore. But I also see people talking about magical realism or simply magic. And uh, so I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts about the terms mythical and mythology mm -hmm magical realism and magical and folklore um are are one are some of these more acceptable or more problematic to you in in your mind no none of those are really uh i mean magic is is problematic it's kind of a uh, it's a little uh, kind of a cheap way of talking about it i think um but you know certainly folklore and mythology um don't bother me at all um the teepee um you know i i put that in uh, Harold, the foster dad, who's non-native. Um, I put that in on purpose. Yes, Cherokees did not live in teepees. The reason I had him build a teepee um, is to sort of show in his own clumsy way, he's trying to connect at the end. Yeah. He wants to, he, he's really a well-meaning um, foster dad. Uh, he's just fall, again, falling into stereotype as if, um, you know, we have these native foster kids, so maybe I should, you know, we can, I can help you build a teepee and, and, you know, I mean, in a, in a clumsy way, I mean, I'm not trying to, maybe I am trying to poke fun of him a little, a little bit. Um, but, but that, I, I'm glad you caught on to that. That's a, a lot of people didn't catch that. Um, but that's certainly what I was doing was again, trying to, to show how easily people fall into stereotyping yeah but to go to go to mythology um you know i i don't have any you know we we uh we use that term i mean they're all stories basically and stories um whether they're real or whether they're not real right i can be offended by something in the bible for example right or something you know in a religious text um and there might be something that I, maybe that um, let's say that I don't think that is literally true, but that still has a power on me. It has, you know, um, you know, uh, if there's a biblical story, for example, that maybe I feel like, well, it's an exaggeration, right? But it can still be meaningful to me. I think that, you know, mythology, a lot of the stories in mythology can, um, they don't necessarily have to be completely true. They can be embellished, um, you know, they, they, uh, uh, but, but ultimately, what do we come away with? Some kind of understanding about the human condition or something about how we live in this world and how we treat each other. And I think that's the importance of storytelling and a lot of what I'm trying to do in the removed. Yeah. 
Well, when I, one of the one of the reasons why I think non-native readers might inappropriately reach towards the word magical versus mythical is that there's a lot of signs within the book that seem to suggest an active hidden meaning to the world. Um, perhaps with no one more than the foster child, Wyatt, who the Chodas take in, and which you described some of the things that happened earlier, you described as miraculous. The, the foster situation is super different than, than um, in your last book, a white foster family with a Cherokee child. And, and this one, we have a Cherokee family taking in a Cherokee child. Um, but why it coming into their lives causes them to think very much of Ray Ray, but there are also many things about Wyatt that make him and his appearance seem almost uncanny to the Echotas, so much so that the father believes that he is in some ways the return of Ray Ray. And, and things start to happen to people, as you mentioned, for instance, the father's uh, reversal, or at least temporary reversal of, of some of his memory loss that seem almost miraculous. So I was hoping maybe you could just talk to us a little bit more about Wyatt, because he you you give him a lot of signifiers that make him seem like uh, he's removed from contemporary world, which also imbues him with a certain um, sense of meaning. Yeah, I and and this is through um, those sections are through Maria's point of view that's important to say yeah and and i think that you know with maria also holding on to this idea of hope and spiritual healing um that you know in no way is she unreliable of course but Again, we're only getting that through her perspective, right? It's not me, the author, or the, you know, a third person, um, you know, an omniscient narrator or anything. Um, it's it's through her uh, her own perspective. So so part of that is her seeing um, as she clings to that such heavy grief. I really was trying to show, you know, she's in some ways just barely hanging on 15 years of watching her husband decline, her son decline and not having her oldest son even there, you know, um, has really completely just um, bombarded her with such heavy grief. And so there's this hope that anything as slight as um, a memory that he shares right is becomes becomes starts to feel miraculous Hmm. you know hanging on to that possibility of hope is is he somehow coming out of this right this um terrible disease this you know the way his deterioration of the mind is he coming out of that and if so what's contributing to that it has to be you know something with this boy 
right? The Wyatt coming in and, and being um, very different. I wanted him very different from Sequoia because Sequoia is very sort of sad and brooding and dark, you know, and, and um, really kind of not, unsure of, you know, um, who he is. But Wyatt is very, very much, uh, you know, he's, he's coaching the, the, the football team. He's even refing it. He's like organizing these guys over here and you guys over here do this, right? He's very outgoing and very animated and theatrical. And um, so she sees, she, you know, they see Ray Ray um, in, in him. And so, uh, you know, that idea of, is it just her or is it, or is it something more? That sort of ambiguity I like sort of um, playing with. Yeah. Well, given that you portray these two very different foster care situations mm-hmm. and how fraught foster care has been for native children. I think going back to the founding of the Indian boarding schools, I was looking up the, the, uh, the founder of the Carlisle industrial school who coined the phrase, kill the Indian to save the man. And your, your um, longtime work as a social worker for many years can, can you speak into the ways in which you see the foster care system, particularly through um, the lens of Native children and the outcomes that you've seen or challenges that you've seen with the foster care system in that regard? I think, you know, based on my own experience that, um, especially long-term foster care, that Native Native kids um, feel in their community and, you know, within their tribe. And I think they, they thrive very well in that way. But I have seen, um, I've seen native uh, kids in, in non-native foster care that, that did just fine. Urban, you know, when I was, uh, again, working, I worked in, and, you know, lived in more of an urban area, you know, closer to Oklahoma city, which is, you know, not, which is away from Cherokee Nation, you know, so it's a little bit different. Um, and, and again, mo- there are many, many, many Native kids um, out there and, and not all of them, uh, especially short term, you know, um, uh, and older teenagers uh, are so hard to, um, you know, to, to find foster placement with, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Indian Child Welfare, you know, is um, the Child Indian Child Welfare Act, right? Allows um, Native kids to be placed within with other Native uh, um, communities. But I, I, I really wanted, and where the dids are talking to, you know, to have this non-Native uh, part of part of that was I wanted to show the the mix of cultures there and how they how they react to one another, yeah. right? their own flaws and, and, you know, how they're, uh, I'm always trying to do something different, you know, and I'm always wanting to, you know, um, uh, uh, shake the tree a little bit. So, I mean, I think that, you know, that was a big part of, um, uh, for that book. Um, but, but yeah, I did my, my social work was, uh, you know, seven years. I, I was a social worker and, um, uh, before I went on and, did a PhD and um, 
it's it's it just became at some point it's such difficult work um and i wasn't i didn't have the community of writing uh, or writers around me i needed a community yeah i wanted so i went on and did the phd that's really my passion um you know I, the, the people who like my mom was a social worker basically uh most of her life and um you know uh, um you know people like her they're just it's just astounding that that they can you know uh, that they can do that kind of work for seven years is a long time i realize that but you know um uh, there are people who do it for 30 years it just blows my mind yeah well it's interesting looking at the situation pre-indian child welfare act i mean i mm-hmm. it makes sense to me that narratively it would be particularly interesting to put a native child in a white foster care family and of course there would be situations where that would be a good placement but the statistics were were really mind-boggling to me when i was looking up pre-indian child welfare act um for instance in the 70s up to a third of native children were either in foster homes adoptive homes or institutions with 85 percent of them placed outside of their extended families or communities um just just remarkable that it would be almost nine out of ten that would be placed outside of a native scenario pre pre legislation yeah absolutely it's it's i mean at some point it's just like finding a a safe space um when I was in first grade my my and my dad tells this story um because I obviously don't remember and I had a friend over and and uh, who's native. And, um, at some point, I guess I, I went inside for the night and, you know, ate dinner and went to bed the next morning. My dad woke up, was going outside to go to work. And there was my friend asleep on our porch. And, and, you know, he, he had had, uh, you know, it's a terrible childhood. Right. Um, and, and so a lot of part of, you know, the town I grew up in, yes, was somewhat urban, because it was close to Oklahoma City, but um, but but there were a lot there was a lot of uh, um, a lot of poverty, not just with Native kids, but with all all kids. And I think there became a time where you know it's like we just need a safe space for this kid. Whether that's if we can't find one with a Native, you know, if it's not a Native family, you know, um, is there a white family? We need a safe and a, and a uh, for a seven year old. I mean, my my youngest son is seven and to think you know that how sad it is for a seven-year-old to sleep on a on a porch somewhere because they don't want to go home uh, that's the kind of stuff that you know drew me into thinking about um you know being a social worker was um you know how you can make a difference there but it also um informs my writing uh, because you know that that friend um you know later ended up in prison and um you know uh, i wasn't at his uncle's funeral but my dad was there and and they brought him they brought him and he was in shackles and and you know it's just it's he's just had an entirely sad life right i mean his entire life has been extremely sad and and so um you know so at, at some point it's like we need if you're in a town like mine we need a safe place for this kid to go 
you know, and we don't care where it is. Is it a white family? Is it a black family? Is it, you know, native, um, who can take this kid in? And so there was a lot of that, uh, you know, going on. So, um, so I'm not surprised even before the Indian Child Welfare Act, you know, that, because I think that was probably it, right? How do we, how do we find a safe space? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to return again to, um, craft and to the and to the Rebecca Mackay conversation she she marveled at how much your book contains at a pretty short length from foster care to the trail of tears to police brutality to Alzheimer's dementia to drug addiction without the book ever feeling rushed or overfull or undercooked and and she felt like you accomplished this with the way there were these overlays that permeate the present day, the, the ancestral story and voices, and also the virtual reality of the video game and the alternate reality of the darkening land, which we'll talk about. But part of your answer to her bringing this up was your love of an attention to the sentence and compressed prose with a particular attention to language. And you mentioned magazines that I also love conjunctions and noon um, which you get published in with some frequency. And furthermore, the experience of being edited by the founder of Noon, Diane Williams, who comes from this Gordon Lish school with its attention to syntax. And I was just hoping maybe you could share anything that comes to mind about the experience of being edited by her, what it's like and what, what you've learned from it, given, I mean, there's a lot of writers who are listening to this show, and um, and she is such a unique figure and engager with language she really taught me how to edit i think by by being so thorough with my work and by challenging me to do two things number one to look at the how how crucial is this sentence how is this really informing the story or moving the story forward how is it really telling us something important about the character right or is it just static right i feel like like i said earlier so much long fiction out there is just static um that to me feels like could be shorter but um that's the first thing the second thing uh she taught me to do was to to really shake the tree and push it where she says this idea push this idea this is the interesting right don't be afraid to push this idea and uh and so facing confronting that that i might not have thought of right because i, I you know there might be some can i do that can i say that she really really um taught me that those two things and you know, for that I'm grateful, and it, but but I think that it you know it spills over into my work as I'm as I'm working on something. I often think um, about her, and and yeah, I you know, and and the, the books I write are generally short. I mean, this is you know, the removed is what 280 pages or something, but it's not like it's tiny print. You know, it's um, I think word count wise, it's you know maybe just over 70,000 words or something, which is, you know, 
not a big novel. It's, it's about an average, average size novel, I guess. Certainly where that it's talking is um, a little bit shorter than that. So, uh, um, well, when she was on the show, we, we talked about uh, something that she'd said. Um, the sentence cannot be overemphasized. Neither can a fragment of a sentence or any syllable of a word. The writer either exploits the language for maximum effects or, does she, or she does not. Missed opportunities are there regardless. And I reached out to her to see if she had a question for you today. Oh. And, unsurpri- and unsurprisingly, she, she wanted to ask you about a sentence um, <laughs> okay. of yours and how, you arrived oh, wow. at, okay. and how you arrived at this sentence. And it's a sentence from a short story that is going to be the lead story in the next issue of Noon, which she very happily for me sent to me called A Man Came to Visit Us. I was so blown away by the ending of this story and, oh, it's, and its power and how it seems both imbued with meaning and resistant to meaning at the same time that I kind of want to ask you about the ending. And Diane wants to ask you about the story as a whole and about the sentence. But my, my question returns us to the question of quote unquote magical versus more of a true spiritual cosmology as the story is about a white man who comes to visit a native family and, lures the child outside with the promise of something magical. But when the child closes his eyes and holds the magic rock, what happens seems to be something else entirely. And that something else entirely both seems wondrous and true and sinister and deceptive at the same time. And you're not really sure if it's either or both, but, but either way, I'm going to ask, I'll, I'll, I'll quote what Diane said to me in the email. And then maybe you can talk both about the sentence she pulls out and the story as a whole. So Diane says, A man came to visit us is an especially stunning and haunting story, and I would be fascinated to hear anything Brandon can share about its origin and his experience of writing it. And how did he come up with this inspired line, for instance? Outside, the full moon looked like a big white fist in the sky. Wow. I'm afraid anything that I say will come as a letdown after you've <laughs> built up that story. And, it's so good, and, really. I mean, uh, and uh, well, thank you. And and that email from the the brilliant uh, and mentor to me, Diane Williams, who, by the way, should um she should. She deserves a MacArthur Genius Award if, I mean, because uh, I think she's just absolutely brilliant. Um, and it's such an, one of the honors of my life has been getting to know her and working with her on my, on my work. The big white um, fist in the sky, right, is very much, I think, you know, comes out of the idea that this, the universe is against this kid. And as he looks up in in a way to, you know, to the sky for help after this horrible, horrible um, experience with this white man who came to visit in the middle of the night, who dragged him, who lured him in a very mysterious and 
um, deceptive way. Uh, he looks to the universe and, you know, the universe shows its fist. Yeah. I wish you could, could. yeah, no, I wish you could teach. I mean, if I could be sitting at your feet learning storytelling, I wish you could teach how you pulled off that ending, which does feel like a, uh, a, an amazing act. I think you mean the, 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 yeah, the, the dialogue past Um, that after that? No, the juxtaposition of two things that seem incompatible with each other. Oh, you mean the moon and, and the fist? Or no, the uh, the what he sees when he clo- the boy sees when he closes his eyes, holding the the so called magic rock, and yeah. then what is what you're allowing the reader to imagine might actually be happening instead. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, I think allowing ourselves to really access the parts of our, ourselves. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it really. Yeah. I mean, and part of what's so great about that ending is that you can't, I don't think you can explain it as a reader either. And I don't think that's a flaw. I feel like it's, it's held in a sense of, in a place of paradox and contradiction that is very evocative, but can't be reduced to comprehension. That's, oh, thank you. That's what I that, love about it. That means a lot that you say that and, and that Diane asked that quote, it really does mean a lot to me. Um, she, I'll say this, she challenges me. And I think writers should be challenged to really look deep inside themselves and explore as the darkness as much as they can, or, or the, um, the fears, their fears, um, you know, so yeah, she's, she, uh, she, she's taught me that. Um, so, uh, I want to ask you about a question around your writing and your influences in light of mm-hmm. questions of authenticity. Um, when you were talking with, Santi, you talked about your fears of not being native enough to write what you wanted to write, to tackle some of the material you wanted to tackle. And Santi pointed out how these authenticity narratives from the question of how much are you or how native are you to the measurement of that and the quantification of that by blood are, are all the results of a colonial uh, overlay And it made me think of this controversy from 30 years ago between Leslie Marmo Silco and Louise Erdrich when Silco was reviewing some of Erdrich's early books from the 80s um, and very in a very pointedly critical way. And I'm thinking about your interest in Diane Williams and Christine Scutt and also in William Volman and Roberto Bolaño the latter two, I think, feel like influences in the darkening land sections, which I want to talk about after this. But I was reading an article called Postmodernism, Native American Literature and the Real by Susan Perez-Castillo. And Castillo looks at Silco's uneasiness at influences on Erdrich's work 
that to Silco seemed like, quote, academic postmodern so-called experimental influences, and they were ones that foregrounded the interaction of words, according to Silco, and de-emphasized their referential dimension, and that these influences stay within the language and within the individual mind in comparison to the oral tradition, which by nature is shared communal experience, according to Silco. Um, but Castillo had a really interesting critique of that, and I've seen other critiques of that too, uh, of Silco's stance at the time. And of course, I have no idea what her stance is now, um, and that's what I'm also curious about. But what Castillo says is, in the field of Native American studies, one pernicious effect of regarding individual groups in a somewhat idealized fashion as threatened bastions of authenticity is that it often results in a referential, a reverential, sycophantic approach to Native American texts. And she goes on to critique Silco's position, which she characterizes as a position that characterizes ethnicity as stable and unchanging and falling into a sort of ahistoricism. Um, and I'm, I'm not one to say, but my first impression reading this 30 years later is that the discourse within Native American literature has moved far from this position, that there seems to be a, a celebration and encouragement of the differences of approach and of multivaried influences. Um, but I don't know if that's actually true. And I wondered if the removed gets critiqued within the indigenous literary world from a position of how, quote-unquote, authentic it is, or whether that's not happening, or if you had any thoughts about this controversy at all. But, um, but I'm interested if you do. Well, I haven't really um, heard anybody... Uh, critique it yet so much, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, my friend Tommy Orange um, read it and and gave me that wonderful blurb. Um, and my friend Dave, David Hesco Wombly Wyden is is native and uh, read it and, and also gave me uh, a blurb. And um, I, I think the, the book certainly does come out of different uh, influences and styles, um, you know, based, I, I think that's based me on me as a writer and not so much out of any kind of tradition of looking, thinking about, um, you know, Native Americans, American literature or anything, um, you know, so I, I, what, what was the quote exactly that, that Silco said? Well, she, she was, she was thinking that the, um, academic and what she called so-called experimental influences uh -huh. were imported influences in Erdrich's work, her experiments right. with form, but yeah. I, but, and that they were suited for like an alienated Western mind where language was the only way people connected. But the, um, but it seems to me like, I wonder if that's, I mean, to view like the na native identity as as being completely um, not part of a fragmented world, um, like you say, like the portrayal of like urban natives versus do we do we do natives need to be preserved in this authentic 
pre-colonial state? Like, are you, are you participating in us in, in inadvertently in a, um, yeah. in a stereotype by defending the purity of a, what, what a native text would be? I want, I mean, that's the questions that I think this Castillo is raising about. This. Yeah. Those are questions that we could talk all after. I can, what I could do is go open a bottle of, you know, uh, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> gotch and, uh, we'll, you know, we'll, uh, I'll put on dark side of the moon and, and all right. we'll really talk. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I mean, we could talk for a long, long time about that. Um, but, you know, I mean, anything that I say here would probably upset someone, right, to, to answer that question. Um, so I don't know that I'm, I'm fit to, to, to give a good thorough answer to that, except to say, look, I just try, I'm just trying to, um, you know, to, to uh, incorporate my own style, my own books in my own way. And yes, I'm a, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not trying to necessarily, um, say this is the, the voice for, for a chair, what a Cherokee novel should be, for example. Right. This is not, this is not the defining Cherokee novel, um, or, or work that should, you know, define anything. I just happen to be, um, a Cherokee writer doing my own thing that in this book addresses, uh, violence against natives certainly but um I, I that's a really really hard question to to answer that i'm afraid would um come across as me looking um you know uh, way worse than i want to be looked right <laughs> <laughs> well um i i saved the my favorite part of the book for last and that is when we are with edgar the brother who's a struggling with addiction and ends up in a place that is kind of similarly uncanny to the ending of your story in Noon. It seems to be both the site of a live-action video game that involves racist holograms, and which is full of smog and toxic waste and menace, and also a place called the Darkening Land, a place from Cherokee tradition where spirits go and wait until justice is served. So the, it's an overlay of two things simultaneously. But this darkening land is also filled with musicians who who have died of suicide, um, Kurt, from Kurt Cobain to Phil Oaks to Elliot Smith. But also, but all of this is, is cast into doubt, what we're experiencing, because Edgar himself is on drugs. So where we are and how solid our footing is feels very unstable. Mm-hmm. And I imagine this was super fun to write because it's really amazing to read. And I, I was hoping maybe you could talk about creating this world that feels sinister and contemporary and ancestral and otherworldly at the same time. It was the most fun to write. And as a fiction writer, you know, maybe like what science fiction writers get to create their own sort of universe um, and your own laws. And, and I, I really talk about when I talk to students about trying to find the pleasure in writing, you've got to, you've got to have fun with it. And it should be, um, it should be, and David Foster Wallace talked about that a lot. He talked about the, um, you know, that so much, uh, you know, there's so much joy that should be, um, 
experienced when writing. And so, yeah, this, this darkening land, um, you know, was, was a place that I, I could, I could do that. And I, I did put in some pop cultural references in there. Edgar, you have to remember also is, this has made it especially fun. Edgar's an unreliable narrator because of his, his situation, you know, and, and being uh, on, on drugs and uh, entering this place, um, in a sense, I got to create my own very um, evil video game and uh, even wrote out the, 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 right, the, um, the manual for this game, which I had much longer. My editor's like, okay, <laughs> this, is, this is going on too long. I know you had fun with it, but she let me keep, you know, some of it, which, uh, you know, the, uh, the torturous radioactive mud pit, um, <laughs> you know, going TRMP, right, um, you know, and, and, you know, making those sort of little jabs that I thought were fun and, and, and uh, in some ways uh, uh, funny because it's such a dark, it's such a dark uh, uh, story that I wanted to, to um, put some of that in there. And, but um yeah, I, I mean, you know, part of it that is, is uh, Edgar uh, really just wanting to go die and finds himself on a train into this um, sort of underworld, right? Uh, this seventh hell or this uh, darkening land and um, see, happening to see an old, there's an old classmate here. Hey, you know, and but this guy you know, turns out to be um, as evil as, as any of them. Jackson Andrews uh, is, uh, you know, making this uh, game based on the stereotype, Jim Thorpe game, and you kind of look like Jim Thorpe, right? You're native. So um, here, hold this, hold this basketball and dribble it. Let me film you doing these things. And I've got these holograms of your brother. And part of that all fits in to Edgar thinking, you know, am I going to die in the same way that my brother died by shooting, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, those kind of fears, I think throughout the book, I mean, Sonia, you know, asked at some point, um, you know, is she going to, uh, you know, she finds herself in a violent situation. But, but the, the I, yeah, part of the, the, uh, the mythological darkening lane also was for me to play with, really got to play with some surreal imagery there. And, and think about climate change and think about, you know, people are coughing dust and they're walking, you know, sort of um, ghost-like. Um, and again, you know, this is uh, sort of like with Chala's sections, um, in a way, kind of a ghost story. And uh, uh, so um, he's not reliable as he tells us those. And as a fiction writer, you can really just sort of go wild with that. You know, Otessa Moshfeg um, is really great at writing the, the unreliable narrator. She's one of my favorite uh, young writers um, out there, I think, who's, who's really doing some really interesting stuff um, and has, has always done interesting stuff. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it was, I, I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Me too. I mean, sometimes they were both, sometimes the moments were both terrifying and hilarious at the same time. 
there's that balance yeah yeah that that line between and i'm really interested in the line between terror and or or even sadness and humor what's terrifying and what's supposed to be humorous what's sad and what's humorous and it comes out of that anxiety about are we supposed to laugh at this or you know am i supposed to be terrified because i feel like this is terrifying or, or really sad right and and i know as a recipient of art i like being challenged in that way i like watching something reading something looking at something you know in terms of art and thinking i i i'm challenged here as to whether i should find other people are laughing and finding but i'm finding it extremely sad yeah. or vice versa um, and then what that what does that say about me Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very dynamic place, transgressive mm -hmm. and dynamic place, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to ask you about doubling in your work at large, because we get a lot of doubling here, obviously, not just virtual reality and holograms or Edgar fearing he's going to end up, or Sonia fearing, both siblings fearing they're going to end up with the same fate as Ray Ray or so many different people in the book seeming like doubles of Ray Ray or, or, or overlays of Ray Ray um, or the two homes of the Cherokee people before and after removal. But there's doubling everywhere. In, mm -hmm. in Deep Ellum, there's a, a replica New York rebuilt in Texas. In Desolation of Avenues Untold, there's an elusive lost film reel of Charlie Chaplin, which may or may not be a sex tape. And the main character unrelated to Cherry Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin is, is named Chaplin. And there's a Michael Stipe lookalike who has seen the sex tape, right. a transvestite named yeah. Echo. Um, and the siblings in both Deep Ellum and Where the Dead Sit Talking have an uncanny connection to each other. So what is this, uh, what is this attraction to the double? The doubling. And the, do um, and the doppelganger. Yeah, that, uh, probably comes a little bit out of um, uh, the simple answer is that comes out of my fascination, fascination with reading Nabokov probably. Huh. Right. And be, being a huge fan of, of uh, you know, his, his work. That's, that's the simple answer. Right. I mean, I wish um, I could, I mean, in some ways I'm sort of fascinated by what it says about um what it says about culture, right, or, or about identity, and how easily, I think with Desolation of Avenues Untold, that's a more of an experimental novel. That was actually my, my creative dissertation at Oklahoma State when I was doing my PhD, and I wanted to do something really quirky and fun and, and experimental, and so I wrote that book, and, um, you know, uh, I don't know how many copies um, there are, but I'm guessing, uh, you know, uh, it's in the double digits, right? <laughs> no, maybe it's triple digits. I don't know. There aren't too many. There aren't too many out there. I can say that it went out of print very quickly, but very small press. Um, uh, but um, I, I and I'm not answering. I'm avoiding answering your question. I know because I, I, I guess I'm just sort of fascinated by, um, or at least in that book, was um, how how people see themselves 
in others and how, how they see themselves in other things and how they long to see something that really is, is entirely, they want to see sameness in the other. They want to see things that are alike. That sort of idea, I guess. Um, and, and, and I mean, if, you know, in terms of nativeness, uh, you know, every tribe is, is very different. But I think that the culture, I, uh, the non-native culture generally thinks, well, you're native, you know, you must be like every other, um, like all native people have the exact same beliefs and the same that, you know, we, we don't all look alike, right? Um, you know, we, we, we all have different upbringings. We all have different beliefs and each tribe is, is very different. So I think, you know, for the removed in terms of that doubling, I'm thinking more about that, not so much with, um, with desolation. Well, I wanted to end with another doubling is, and that is also a doubling about goodbyes. Wyatt, the foster child with the Chodas, who reminds everyone in different ways of Ray Ray. At one point, Wyatt says goodbye using a Latin phrase that means hail and farewell. And it's the same phrase that Ray Ray used the night before he died. And I had my own theories about it, but what does this, what significance does this phrase have for you that you, um, the Latin. Yeah. That you give, that you give it this unlikely synchronicity to the two boys. Mm -hmm. Again, I wanted to draw attention to language. Right. Here's here's Latin. Um, it's not Cherokee. You know, they're not saying goodbye and hail and fair fruit. Uh, they're not saying that in Cherokee. They're saying it in Latin. Right. So, um, I mean, again, to sort of draw attention to the, the idea of um, separateness and, and sameness, I, I guess, what what they what they want to believe. Right. Um, raises this ambiguity about. Um, whether or not, uh, I mean, again, you know, I'm very interested in ambiguity and what they want to believe, right? So it w was it not connected to the Roman poet Catullus? I think that's where the phrase, right, came, came from, yeah. But I wondered if it was, so like the where I went with it was um, that, po that poem is addressing his dead brother, Um who was mm -hmm. taken prematurely. And I'm the reason why I know about it is only because of Ann Carson and Knox. Um, yeah. Right. Where right. she's the, supposedly this poem is nearly untranslatable. It's considered an untranslatable poem. And she uses her attempt and failure to translate it as a, as a connection to the untranslatable grief of losing her own brother. Here you've really done your homework here and you've become the best reader. I, I'm not able to pull any tricks off with you because you've, you've dug deep, David. Uh, I mean, that's, that's where, yeah, that's where it all came from. Right. That's the particular phrase. Um, yeah, absolutely. Huh. Wow. Uh, that's, that's, I, I had thought about because of the idea of dead brothers, basically. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, so in a way you could, you could see Wyatt saying those words, you could see Wyatt saying those words 
to Ray Ray across time, he, saying hail and farewell, or, or as another translator puts it, I salute you and goodbye, or as Ann Carson translate it, and into forever, brother, farewell and farewell. Um, can you, t- can you, a- as we go out, can you talk about what you're working on now or, uh, or do you need to keep that in sort of a hermetic place? I can say this because there, I have two things that I'm working on right now. Um, and one of them is for younger readers, <laughs> right? That may not sound very exciting to people, but but it's it may be the only thing I do for younger readers, mm. for kids that um, that I'm doing um, fiction, and so uh, so that will that will happen. That 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 will come. Um, uh, and and then the other the other thing is a novel which is too early in its stages, uh, you know, for me to know to, or to talk to say anything about, but I'm excited by what I have begun with, with that novel. I'm excited about both. You know, I'm always trying, I'm always wanting to do something different, something new. And so. How about this? Like when you did your Lit Hub interview and you just gave one word answers, like you're supposed to, could you, could you give us some words about that novel? That won't, I mean, just one word. I mean, a list of one words. Let me just say this. It's in the, uh, there's an excerpt of it in the most recent conjunctions. Okay. Great. <laughs> it's, it's called, uh, um, yonder shines the big red moon over the devil's lost playground. That's oh, the title. It's a very long title. I that's know. a great title. Uh, but, um, that, that is an excerpt from what I'm working on. I think you'll see a lot of the same themes as you see in, in, in removed. Mm. Right. More darkening land stuff, the oh, weirdness, good. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, so I think that that um, for now, um, because that's that's where I feel the best as a writer, right? Um, you know, um, I, I, yeah. Um, I mean, I could talk about you know uh, the, the book of the month club readers uh, who aren't necessarily you know jiving with what i'm doing right they, they're not gonna like the next one you know so much because it's uh it's uh you know it's a little bit more on the weirdness scale than it is on on the william volman side of of things perhaps. a little bit a little bit more on the the volman side yeah. um yeah and he's he's another one who's been an i don't know if i mentioned him he's been an influence uh on me uh as well his and 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 you know, here's the thing is that his stuff is long, but there's some long stuff that doesn't feel staticky or unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Like his stuff is, and I think he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's on that, you know, I think Wallace and Bowman and Pynchon are three, you know, um, I, I think Silco is too. Uh, you know, they can write these really, really big books and they're just like, wow, I don't think I could cut um, you know, they're very difficult and strange and smart, funny in places, um, you know, so, uh, um, yeah, so it, it'll be, and it, it'll probably be a while before 
you know, I'm doing the young readers book first, which I hope will be fun too. It, sure. It'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for uh, being on the show today. Thanks, David. Yeah. I we appreciate were, it. We were talking today to Brandon Hobson about his latest book, The Removed. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Brandon Hobson's work at brandonhobson.com. And Brandon adds a reading of his new story from Noon Magazine, A Man Came to Visit Us, for the Bonus Audio Archive, joining bonus material from Natalie Diaz, Ross Gay, Viet Tan Nguyen, Carmen Maria Machado, Richard Powers, Jenny Ophel, and many more. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who make this show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogie, Spencer Rukti in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>